AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. Hey Matt, um, I heard you have interesting story about the ransomware targeting some newspapers. Could yeah. you be able to elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. So over over the, the time between Christmas and New Year's, this was a hot story. Mm -hmm. um, apparently, the Los Angeles Times and a number of other like very high-profile newspapers had their operations uh, interrupted okay. by what people were calling ransomware. Okay. Now we can get into whether it's ransomware or not. There's an interesting detail that I found out in one of the, the articles mm -hmm. that suggests that maybe it's not. Okay. Um, but anyway, Tribune Publishing, uh, which used to be, it's a funny kind of arrangement. I may want to back up a little bit. Okay. But it seems that um, the printing operations of Tribune Publishing, which either owned or owns a number of newspapers, okay. they, they kept the same printing facilities. Yeah. So this software, this malware, and it is definitely malware, affected the operations at this particular facility, which uh -huh. prints for the New York Times um, on the West Coast. Uh, also, the San Diego Union Tribune, uh, Wall Street Journal. There are lots of other uh, newspapers were affected because most of them are using the same printing location to you know, get the actually printing of the paper done. There's a sort of a differing of opinion as to who's really behind it. Checkpoint okay. um, had made a statement saying that this is um, related to a kit called Hermes, which okay. is tied to North Korea. Uh, but CrowdStrike, on the other hand, said that this is more likely to be the real ransomware, which is tied to criminals in Eastern Europe. Oh. Both could be true. I mean, we know for a fact that use of a malware kit does not necessarily mean attribution to a single set of people. Yeah. Now, we've seen people, you know, if you can buy malware on the underground... You can get the kits right nowadays. Exactly. Yeah. So it could be anybody. Now, this, is, this isn't necessarily true for this kit. I'm just saying that it's not impossible that, you know, we're attributing it to two different groups here because both of them happen to use very similar malware. Okay. Well, um, was there a ransom involved? Well, that's the interesting thing, that mm. from what I understand, it looked like it's ransomware. It behaves in the same way where it encrypts everything. Okay. But the message that showed up for the users didn't specify a ransom amount. I mean, ultimately, the only thing that separates ransomware and destructive malware is that you can get your files back, in theory, with ransomware. But you know, connecting to somebody else's machine and encrypting all their files and not giving them the key is just destructive malware, in my opinion. So it's interesting. Um, there's some attribution. Someone's calling this the Ryuk ransomware. It was similar to Ryuk. Okay. Also attributed to a group called Grim Spider. I mean, it's it's all over the place to me. Um, there was an interesting uh, bit of nugget in one of the articles saying that they had actually managed to clean it out. So they started. They found it on a Thursday. They cleaned them out by a Friday morning, yeah. and then by Friday night they were back in again. Yeah, yeah. So that sort of back and forth is interesting to me as so someone who's done. So there's definitely some sort of persistence in there. Right. It's not definitely. like this was a fire and forget, or like this was a worm that was going out. That was another thing that was interesting, is at least one of the articles mentioned that there was no worming capability. It didn't seem to spread by itself within the network. Mm -hmm. It's suggesting that someone got access to the network and manually put it on all the boxes okay. and then triggered it. And in that article, I think I believed I saw there's angle of TrickBot probably. Yes, I did see a mention of, of TrickBot as the delivery mechanism. Delivery mechanism. Yeah. Okay. So, again, it seems to be kind of a, a cloudy, hazy at this point. Uh, I hope that we find more out about it because it's kind of a big deal to, to disrupt the operations of a major newspaper. Yeah. So, what do you think, Mike? Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Uh, certainly, the target, right, being a, a newspaper. 
it'd be interesting to understand what maybe the possible motivations are behind that. Is it political? Uh, certainly think about how t- time-sensitive newspapers are. So if it is ransomware, you know, you, you think they'd have a really short view on, on when to get, um, you know, to receive that ransom. So um, I also saw that not just the printing facility, but also the inability, the ability for newspapers to send the files back and forth. You, have to think, you know, you think about that when they're printing these this data, they have to send a large amount of uh, of data back and forth for, for files to be printed. So um, definitely interesting that, that this was the target, again, if it's if it was the intended uh, disruption of, of newspapers, um, so it could be, could be ransomware. If you are uh, a company that relies heavily on a partner in order to operate, it may behoove you to talk to them, have a conversation about cybersecurity, because anything that they fail to do properly or anything that they do to attract attention um, ultimately will have impact on your operations as well. So Mike, uh, I know I use a Chromecast at home and I like how easy it is to send videos to it, uh, but apparently uh, it's really easy to send videos to a whole bunch of Chromecasts. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, so this one maybe is a little more in the uh, mischievous category than, than malicious that we uh, tend to talk about. But, yeah, these, these two hackers effectively hijacked you know, thousands of Chromecasts uh, really across the Internet. Uh, they were able to rename them and actually play some unauthorized video uh, that was promoting this YouTube star. Uh, they also put some information in there. It was basically informing the user that their device was exposed to the Internet and uh, you're really exposing some sensitive information about them. It's surprising to see about 70, 75,000 Chromecast devices are connected to the internet, uh, which basically it actually it's supposed to reside inside the home networks. They took advantage of universal plug and play. So it wasn't actually any kind of exploit or vulnerability on the Chromecast itself, but some home routers, uh, most home routers actually have universal plug and play uh, enabled, but some of them tend to leak some of the internal devices and expose them on the external interfaces, which is obviously not something you want for some of these smart devices we have that have absolutely no credentials. Yeah, so that's an interesting point. Um, now, how do people tell whether or not their Chromecasts are connected out to the internet? Because I'm, I'm fairly sure mine isn't. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's, it's really something you need to check on your, your home router, right? So we have, uh, you know, obviously our connection out to our ISPs. Um, and we either use, you know, we can rent from the, the provider, we can set up our own. And, you know, if you log into uh, the management interface, you can see all these different configuration options. And typically there's a checkbox that says, you know, UPMP, or universal plug and play. And for the most part, uh, you know, unless you know what you're doing, you don't necessarily want that enabled. UPNP is one of those things that will kind of make changes automatically without user interaction. And in general, that's not a great idea. Just to add on that, uh, I think, um we, if we can disable the port forwarding for three or four ports, actually, they're saying that can minimize the risk, you know, exposing your Chromecast-based devices to the Internet. Okay. In addition to what Mike is telling about, you know, disabling the UPnP. Right. Well, it seems like most home users aren't, don't have a noose for port forwarding in the first place. I mean, most users aren't yeah. hosting things that need to be mm-hmm. internet accessible. So if it's something you could turn off, yeah. do it, yeah. yeah and, and unfortunately, these devices come de- by default with the UPnP enabled. Mm. So. <laughs> that seems like a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that, I was wondering before, you know, we got on this, the air, how 70,000 Chromecasts could possibly have been exposed to the internet, right? Because you would think that's that by default that wouldn't happen, but all right. Did you happen to look at how many views that 
particular video or channel had? Because I imagine by triggering these videos to play, you get views towards your account in YouTube. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I didn't, it didn't mention it, so I don't know if they, if they noticed any uptick in, in subscriptions or views. Um, they, they did note the primary objective was uh, really to um, uh, educate the public that, you know, these things are exposed and we're, we're kind of, you know, taking a light approach, but someone can come along later and really, um, you know, you have a real purpose with them. All right. They also noted that, you know, it did expose, I think the primary thing was they exposed some information. So you, you could also, you could play unauthorized videos. You could also reset the device to factory. You could reboot it. You could act, you could see what Bluetooth devices were connected. So it did expose some other information that, um, that someone could take, take more advantage of. Oh, that, is, that is a little more scary. All right. Interesting. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Ganesh, you have an interesting story about some malware using memes for command and control? Yes, Mike. Um, it's a little novel way of actually, you know, a malware is trying to reach out to C2. It's not per se is uh, nothing we have seen like, uh, you know, some sort of Twitter or maybe social media being used as a command and control. Mm -hmm. But in this specific case, what they're using is uh, they're using Twitter memes as a command or maybe control the malware. Sure. And how they're doing it is actually they're using a stenography. Stenography is, a, you know, something you try to hide by pretending something like a, like an image file. Around, I think, last October, uh, mid last October, uh, they released two Twitter memes. Uh, once these memes were released, uh, wherever the malware has been been, the victims, you know, they try to contact these memes. When they're trying to contact, it basically instructs the malware or the victims what to do the next step. Mm -hmm. um, the, the per se Twitter is not, the Twitter account is not malicious, but the only those two memes are the malicious ones here. Interesting. So how does this work? Uh, the way it works is whenever the infected victim reaches out to those two memes, what, what it tells is basically it parses that uh, image. There's a source image. It tries to uh, expand it. And it has a specific pattern. Uh, the pattern itself is anything starting with the slash forward slash, and there's followed by some sort of command. In this case, the trend lab researchers, well, they, they looked at a couple of, um, I think, variants. In the, the, the variants they looked at it, it's only doing the printing. The, the, the thing printing does is actually it takes the snapshot of the victim systems. Okay. What it's at the, at the same point of time. Once it gets this um, snapshot of it, actually, it tries to reach out a hard-coded URL, which has been posted on Pastebin. Okay. So that's how this malware works. But uh, luckily, I think uh, this has been uh, contained by the whole industry. I think in the December uh, mid-time, the Twitter account has been suspended by the Twitter, and the memes are not there. But the novelty in this, in this thing is the use of memes as command and control. Yeah, well, this is what I want to ask about is, is it just that they're using images? They're, they're using the images with the malicious payload, the yeah. payload, yeah. It's, it's interesting to see this combination. I know I've seen both Twitter and steganography used as command and control, but never the two of them together. Yeah, I, I think that's what they're alluding to. I mean, Twitter has been used, as you said, and, and any other other platforms used, but the combination of Twitter and meme as a command and control mm -hmm. 
is something old. That's what they're saying. Because, mm -hmm. you know, typically some organizations might allow to reach out to Twitter, right? Sure. So, and this is being so invisible, actually, it flies on the radar, only it activates when the infected mission tries to reach those uh, malicious memes. So, by looking at the image file, um, a naked eye can't, even the, any, you know, systems can detect there is something malicious, unless there's uh, some sort of communication going on. All right, well, pretty interesting. Yep, I thought it's a little interesting uh, using that memes. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, I mean, th this could be pretty difficult to detect. I mean, just think about how many bots there are now, you know, out on Twitter. Um, think how many people just, like, respond to, to something with simply an image, right, with a meme. So um, it might be difficult, you know, to find something that, you know, is, is, is using this to, to embed command and control. Uh, like Ganesh, I think, said, you know, certainly if you don't have a, a reason to have, uh, you know, your users accessing Twitter, um, you shouldn't, but um, it's definitely a novel approach to, uh, like, you know, legitimate channels we've seen before, right, through GitHub, through some other social media. Uh, this one is pretty interesting. I think if you're a network admin and you have the ability to restrict or block Twitter and you don't have a business case for it, uh, I, would, I would shut it down. Hey, Ganesh, let's talk about the internet weather. Mm -hmm. So the top 10 most probe ports uh, as of yesterday, not a whole bunch of movers or shakers this, uh, this week, but let's talk about them anyway. Uh, port 23 TCP is Telnet, remains the king. Uh, 1433 is Microsoft SQL Server. 445 is SMB, which is only up one. 8545 is down one. Um, I believe we've covered 8545 before. Ethereum? Sorry? Is it Ethereum? It is Ethereum, mm -hmm. that's right. Um, 22 TCP is SSH, 3389 is Remote Desktop Protocol, 81 TCP is an alternate web port, uh, could be various things, 80YCMP is ping, 443 is SSL, and 80 is regular old web, unencrypted. Mm -hmm. So, taking a look at the most sources probing, and that's the number of, of endpoints that are sending traffic and not volume. Um, 445 is at the top, 23 and 8080. 8080 is commonly a proxy port, and that's mm -hmm. what I tend to think that's doing there. Uh, interesting here, we've got 5431 TCP yep. um, up 29 spots. However, there's a reason for this, and I'll go into it. It okay. seems to be like a periodic scan that we see every okay. once in a while. And I feel like every couple weeks I talk about it on the show because it comes back around again. Okay. Uh, 80 TCP we talked about. 5555 is Android Debug Bridge. Uh, we have 80 ICMP, again, that's ping. 1433 is Microsoft SQL Server. 81 TCP is an alternate web port. And 22, again, is SSH. Mm -hmm. So taking a look at SMB, I like to track this one all the time because uh, we had such a fun time dealing with uh, WannaCry. That's been like a year and a half now? Yeah. Wow, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, that is why I keep an eye on it. It seems to be trending down slightly in the last week or so. This is a 90-day view. Um, but not a huge amount of change. You can see that daily pattern cycling mm -hmm. through, of course. Yeah. Uh, port 23 TCP Telnet, we had some spikes towards the end of last year, but it seems to have evened out a whole bunch. This is scan flows again. Um, so somewhere around 800 million is where we're, we're coming out around now uh, in terms of scan flows. Uh, but again, not, not a huge amount of activity going on here, no recent spikes. Um, this is that 5431, and, and you can see here that every once in a while we manage to catch one of these spikes as we're measuring. Mm -hmm. um, and this is Broadcom UPnP. This is another one of those bugs that people like to use yes. for their... IoT botnets. Yeah. Um, so the the scan sources spike up suddenly and come back down. So it's it seems to be following it, the trend there. Yeah. Yeah. Take a little bit of a look at port fifty five five fifty five. 
which is using a known vulnerability for Linksys, but on a port we've never seen before. You can see ever since the end of last year, we've had some spikes, but over the last week or so, it has significantly increased and there's like a, a new baseline of, of a lot of scanning. Hmm. Now, most of the sources seem to be in Japan, Australia, and the US. Okay. And I took a look at our honeypots and what it looks like it's scanning for is this tmunlock.cgi file that's a known Linksys vulnerability. Oh. However, mm -hmm. I couldn't find any documentation showing that any Linksys devices actually expose anything on this, on this port. port. Oh, so I don't know what's going on. Maybe it's a typo, maybe it's a bug in the code, but all of a sudden oh. there's interest in it. So I'd love to know if anybody learns anything more about this mm. because this is a significant jump. Yeah. This is something and we should track. Continuing. Yes, that's true. Yeah. I mean, these, this is a very popular exploit to use on the other ports that it's available on, mm -hmm. but I don't understand this one, really, so, mm. yeah. It's unknown at this time. We need to dig a little bit further, you know, understand what's really going on. So taking a look at port uh, 1433 TCP MS SQL, I want to see where the, the uptick started, because okay. we had seen it back in, um, in December. I kind of wanted to see where we were at before that. So this is a 90-day view. Mm -hmm. And you can see that huge, that huge spike that we went up to around 11 to 12,000 scan sources per hour um, that we observed. But it, was, it wasn't you know, as, as low as we thought. I was sort of measuring it around um, the 6th or the 7th, and it, where it was down at like um, 500 sources. But it has actually a history of some interest prior to that. So okay. um, somewhere around uh, two to four and a half thousand over time, um, but yeah, in, in the last month or so, someone's really been hammering on it hard. And I think we found some evidence that there was a, a, a bug that was being used to get admin rights on some of these servers that exposed MS SQL. So. I think so, so but I can't uh, recollect now, but uh, mm -hmm. we did find something. Yep, so looks like well, there's uh, still continued interest in this bug. And that's it for today. Oh, thank you, Mike. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.